Hello and welcome to The Conscious Capitalists, hosted by two of the co-founders of the Conscious Capitalism Movement and co-authors of the Conscious Capitalism Field Guide from Harvard Business Press, Raj Sisodia and Timothy Henry. Each week, this podcast covers current events and business news and Raj and Timothy's latest thinking on what it takes to build a conscious business. For more information and notes from the show, go to www.theconsciouscapitalists.com. And now, Raj and Timothy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Conscious Capitalists, episode number 24, with myself, Timothy Henry, and my partner in trying to make the world a better place through business, Raj Sasodia. Hi, Raj. Hey, Timothy. Great to see you again. Good to see you. And, oh, we've got a special, a special guest today. We have the maestro of values, the... Uh, um, the world's famous Richard Barrett, who's famous for the Barrett Value Center and the Barrett model of values. So, hello, Richard. Well, hello, Timothy and Raj. So lovely to be with you, my old buddies. <laughs> Good to see you. Good to see you. And, um, you know, um, uh, you know, we could do a long intro about your history with the World Bank and other things, but I'd I think it'd be interesting if, you know, what would you want to tell people who don't know you uh, about you? Yeah, well, um, you're assuming there are some people out there who don't know me, uh, but anyhow. (laughs) 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 Sorry. yeah, I'm all, all about the evolution of human consciousness. That's, you know, that's why I was born. I was born to focus on that thing alone. I didn't know it for many, many years until my mid-40s, but that's my gift is a, a deep insight into consciousness and values and human evolution and... Um, and that's what I that's what I focus on all the time right now. And... Um, for the last 20 odd years. And that's what I'm about. I'm about the evolution of human consciousness and helping people and supporting people and organizations and societies and nations in that evolutionary process. Well, I think then it's great to understand how did you get to that? You know, I also, I would say, discovered my purpose in my late 40s, right? I was just stumbling right. along doing work that was not meaningful and no joy in it and no impact really. So how did you get to the World Bank, first of all, and then how did that lead to uh, your um, awakening or realizations around values? And how did you develop the, uh, the seven levels of consciousness? Well, um, so uh, like you, Raj, um, uh, I began to focus on my inner purpose, my soul mission in my 40s. Now, you know, I have a, a seven levels of consciousness model and seven stages of psychological development and uh, stage number five it occurs uh, roughly from in your 40s and it is all about finding meaning and purpose in life and so if i meet somebody who's in their 40s i can say "Hmm, this is probably what you're about right now and you and say you've got these challenges you're trying to find meaning and purpose and you may have found it but this is your challenge in your 40s. So there are different stages of development. So um, did I know anything about that when I was 40? No, I didn't. I, um, I, was, uh, I was born at a young age, like the rest of you. 
<laughs> a mere child. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not even that. I was a baby. And, uh, <laughs> Wrapped, and, uh, wrapped in swaddling clothes. No, just. <laughs> and we couldn't afford them, actually. No, I was we were very poor. And, uh, and I single child mum and dad lived in uh, yeah 1945 you know um, my earliest memories are of queuing to uh, with our little coupon books to get food with my mom uh, because you know food was rationed in those days I mean it's going back a long time um, uh, but I was always very bright young boy and I never really understood that until I was about 17 and uh, my school said you know, if you work hard, you could get to university. And my dad said, oh, my gosh. My dad was a motor mechanic, and my mom was a stay-at-home mom. And dad said, you've got to do this. And, uh, and it was been his desire. And like one year later, he died. And mm. my mom said, look, you know, if you can get into university, that was your dad's wish. But, you know, we didn't have any money, my mom and I. And so she said, look, I'll try and find a job if you can get a grant. And we'll do it that way. And I said, oh, you can go out to work and support me. I said, no, I'll, I'll, let me try and find a grant. <laughs> and anyway, that was a real sacrifice on behalf of my mom. I never realized until much later that, you know, this meant me going away to university. And, you know, she'd lost her husband. Now she was losing me. She was going to be on her own. And she actually was on her own for the next 40 years. She lived to be 100. Uh, but it took me many, many years later that I realized what a sacrifice that was. Um, Anyhow, um, and uh, I did, I excelled in my studies and uh, part of that I think was I was trying to prove to my dad that, you know, I was actually doing well and I could do what he wanted me to do and it wasn't the sort of obligation but I, I did study hard and I came out with a first class honours degree in civil engineering and realised very quickly that I wasn't interested in civil engineering and so I studied, studied uh, transportation engineering and developed quite a career in that field and uh, which led me eventually I became a consultant to the World Bank I used to go out and help them put together urban transport projects. And then I got employed by the World Bank. And I'd been there about four or five years when I suddenly realized I was absolutely bored <laughs> with mm. my career at 45 years old, you know. So I said, well, what have, what have I been interested in all my life? And it was, I've read practically every book on psychology I could come across, a spirituality, uh, supernatural. Uh, I was really interested in that other world and, and, and how it impacted our lives. And that led me automatically, and I don't know why, but into the field of values. And I managed to change my job inside the World Bank and become what they called values coordinator. It was really nothing much, but other than they wanted to do an inquiry into values. And, and, and uh, then uh, Having done that for two years, they said, we want you to go back to transportation now. And I said, well, I'm sorry, I, you know, I, I don't want to do that anymore. So, you know, that's when I, <laughs> that's when I began to talk about the fact that when I was 17, I heard my soul say transportation, I thought I heard my soul say transportation, but it actually said transformation. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and I told that to I told that to a friend two years ago, and she said, you know, sounds like you've been living a misspelled life. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was terribly insightful uh, for a Serbian lady. It was really quite good, yeah. Anyhow, so that led me on to 
into a new field and starting the Barrett Value Center. Uh, it wasn't called that in those days and uh, to where I am now. So um, we can fill in this other part later, but that really is my early background and um, never really looked back because my friends in the World Bank said, you know, what, you're leaving to do something you're not known for? You have no reputation. Nobody knows who you are. If you stay another 10 years, you'll get a six-figure tax-free pension. You must be crazy. And I said, sorry, I can't help it. <laughs> Gotta go. <laughs> and that's what happens when you grab meaning and purpose in life. It's like, if you don't go with it, if you'll be get depressed. You know, it'll, it'll, and so Raj, you know, you had that experience too. And it's like, it's yeah. like, you have no choice. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think being able to see those, those uh, opportunities and the door open, you have to walk through it. Uh, otherwise, uh, you know, you live with that regret. So mm. had you already developed the seven levels? <clears throat> uh, uh, yes. Yeah, so, yeah. So the answer was that. So uh, in my last two or three years at the World Bank, uh, when I realized I wasn't going, meant to be a transportation engineer, a transformation, uh, well, a transformation engineer, I, I started writing a book. I got the impulse to write a book. And the title of that book was A Guide to Liberating Your Soul, uh, which um, I finished. I was still at the World Bank. And, um, I, I, and I started writing about consciousness and particularly the different levels of consciousness. And that led me into... Vedic philosophy, uh, um, soul consciousness, cosmic consciousness, God consciousness, unity consciousness. And I had the insight at that time, at that point, to link that to Maslow. So I thought, well, okay, so Maslow kind of stopped at self-actualization. And then I thought, well, oh, wait a minute, these are all different levels of self-actualization. So why don't I slide these two things together, which is what I did to create the seven levels model. Now, I was inspired to do that by my soul. I mean, you know, I can own it, but it's actually what's coming through me. So I, I slid these two things again. And then the next insight was, okay, actually, that's an interesting model. Now, Maslow talked about needs, and I, I realized that whatever you need is what you value. And so I thought, well, actually, this is a model of values. And I was still... I'm still, that was when I started reading, um, writing, uh, liberating the corporate soul. And I was still at the World Bank. And, um, and I was writing this at the weekends. And so, uh, so uh, what I realized, if you ask people, what are your values? <laughs> I could actually plot them against the seven levels. So survival, relationships, self-esteem, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and I realized that, that I discovered something quite unique um, and um, a measurement tool. I remember coming home when I had that insight uh, to my wife and my son and I said, you know, I've just discovered something that I'm going to make millions of dollars. And they laughed at me and said, what's for tea? <laughs> and I thought, oh, well, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, now that's how I left the World Bank then. I left, I left at that point after I just got to the point about almost publishing, liberating the corporate soul. I knew I was onto something and I, was, I had a measurement system. And so there, it took several years to, to find a few clients. One more thing and then I'll stop on this story. Uh, during that period, I was 
I, I got that insight, but I hadn't left the World Bank. I was doing workshops uh, with people on uh, finding your mission in life. And uh, so second day of a two-day workshop in Boulder, Colorado, I was uh, talking to this person. He said, well, so what's your mission? Which is a fair enough question if you're doing a <laughs> workshop on mission, right? <laughs> so I thought, oh, okay, well, I better tell him. Well, I couldn't remember. I had a very well-rehearsed affirmation, which is uh, I'm an internationally recognized speaker and author on personal and organizational transformation. Couldn't remember it. So I thought, Alan, I closed my eyes. And then out of my mouth came the words, I'm an architect of global transformation. Gosh, these were words I'd never thought of. Hmm. I took a deep breath for a month. <laughs> I thought, wow, if this is... I mean, I've written a book on a guide to liberating your soul. So that, this was my soul talking to me. I thought I better get out of the way. And that has been my journey now for 20 or 20, 30, 25 years or more. Um, just watching that happen. And, you know, now I'm on the task force, the values task force for the G20 nations. Um, just about to launch a global humanity awareness initiative, which is about whole new worldview and, you know, it's like, oh, wow. It's, and I heard a great phrase recently when I was discussing the seven levels of model with the Aboriginal elders in Australia, who love the model, by the way. It, it totally agrees with, with their idea. They said, mm, memory of the future. Mm. And I thought, wow, it was a memory of the future. Some people call that destiny. I don't know, but I love that memory of the future. And that's where I am now. Well, Richard, what I loved about your uh, framework, the instant I saw it, I mean, there's a profound simplicity to it. And I think that's, that's like E equals MC squared type of simplicity, right? <laughs> something so, deep. so the seven levels, and then you just, uh, the methodology is, is simple, and yet it reveals so many depths and yeah. complexity that it reveals. So. Uh, just for our listeners, you uh, you provide a list of about 100 words or so, and you're asked to select uh, the 10 words that describe right, your values or the values you wish to see, uh, the values you're experiencing currently, etc. And then you plot each of those against those seven levels of consciousness. Uh, and then that gives you a, uh, a snapshot of where we are against what the ideal is that you, you say is, which is full spectrum consciousness. Right? It's not about right. being at the higher levels and neglecting the lower. That we need all of them right, to be a fully conscious human being means to embody all seven levels. And this right. is a quick, quick way to, uh, uh, to get that information. Uh, my question is, are people self-aware enough to uh, accurately pick the ones or are they kind of... Uh, you know, it... it uh, it actually doesn't matter. It's like, what's... So here they are. They have picked 10 values about who they are, 10 values about how their organization operates, 10 values how they like to, to operate. Now, they are very aware of how the organization operates, so that's pretty accurate. They're pretty much aware of what, what's not working and what they'd like to see working, so that's the contrast. Now, the question is, are they aware of their personal values? Well, uh, it doesn't matter in a way because the values they pick are either the values that they hold or their aspirational values. Mm. And, but they're important to them. That's the point, you know. I used to say values are a shorthand way of saying what's important. Then I define values as the um, 
energetic drivers of our aspirations and intentions. And I've come to realize actually only in the last couple of months that actually values are um, a reflection of the unmet needs that we have at the moment or the needs that are important to us at the moment. And so if you're able to meet those needs, value, whatever you need is what you value, you find inner peace. So values are the root to inner peace. Mm. Mm. Because when you're able to satisfy your needs, stroke values, you feel peaceful. Now, there are values which are limiting values, which like in an organization that would be bureaucracy, hierarchy, etc., etc., or personally, you know, like jealousy, blame, bullying, whatever. Now, these are values, they're limiting values, but they are values that are actually a care because they, uh, the person who is actually having those values gets a benefit by these, from these limiting values, you know. I get a benefit somehow. Uh, uh, and, it, and, and these limiting values all reflect fear at some level. Mm -hmm. uh, and so um, when you pick your personal values, um, you can pick positive values or these potentially limiting values. And I call them potentially limiting because sometimes they're very limiting and sometimes they're not so limiting. But once you understand, you have that, like being liked. Mm. Being like, oh yeah, let me tick that box. I like to be liked. Oh, wait a minute. What that means is that I may not be honest with other people because I tell you the story that I want you to hear, not the st real story, you see? So there's you know, these subtle, potentially limiting values that creep in personally and also inside organization. Yeah, that, that was one of mine when I did the assessment. Yeah, I remember going through it with you. Like, Richard was very kind to point out. <laughs> well, one, of the, one of the things, Richard, that I think is also really rich about this, and, and you've, you've written about this, is, is the, the relationship of beliefs and values, in particular yeah. belief-based decision-making and values-based yeah. decision-making. And, and I'd love you to talk a little bit more about that. Sure, that. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we start our lives uh, as infants, uh, as babies and children and, um, and teenagers, and we grow up in a world of beliefs, you know. And, um, and if we're not careful, we stay there the rest of our lives, uh, limiting beliefs and positive beliefs. And um, there comes a point, that, so those are the first three stages of development. Surviving, conforming, differentiating. We're now at the age of 21, 22. Up to that point in time, we don't have a fully functioning mind or brain because that, that organism is still growing and developing. That's why teenagers do really stupid things because they don't have a fully functioning neocortex. And you, know, you get to 22, 23, you've, you've completed the physical development of your brain, uh, and, but you're full of these uh, beliefs which are culturally and parentally conditioned. And you can stay that way for the rest of your life. Or you can individuate. And that's what Carl Jung talked about, individuation. And, and so we begin to let go of these beliefs and go on the journey of who am I? Who am I outside of this cultural condition? Who am I outside of the parental beliefs? 
that's when we enter into the realm of what do I value? Okay. And so now that's when we begin to shift into values-based decision-making. Now, these days, it's actually fundamentally important to shift there because beliefs link through to past experiences. So I did this and this is what I got. So this is a belief, okay? Now, when a rapidly changing world that we live in where nothing is the same as it was 10 years ago, basing your decisions on beliefs doesn't make a damn bit of sense anyhow, especially in an organization. Mm. So you've got to go to a, a deeper mode of decision-making, and I call that values-based decision. What is it in my heart that brings inner peace mm. when I make a decision on that concept? And that's, uh, that is the key, I think, to uh, becoming conscious. And uh, we can talk about what becoming conscious means a little bit later. But so values are very much linked to becoming conscious. And that's the stage you get to at the individuating stage. If you follow the normal stage of development, which you're from 22, 23, all the way through to self-actualization in your late 30s, and early 40s, um, that's what young people are going through. I, I mentor quite a number of young people and they, that is exactly what they're going through. They're trying to figure out who they are in the world and, and give up those beliefs which were like pounded into their brain. And they're not that. They're no longer that. They are something else. And what they are are souls having human experience. So Richard, there's a, uh, in India, we have this uh, notion of your swabhav or your nature, right? Like, who are you? What's mm. your true nature? Which is something you're born with. And so the question that I have, so if I were to describe my true nature as a very young child, and even it's, it's there always, is, is trusting, it's, it's uh, sort of peaceful or harmony seeking, or it's uh, idealistic, etc. So is that, are those aspects of my nature or are those values that I hold or is it pretty much the same thing? Um, they are, uh, they link through to values. Um, now, you see, uh, in one sense, uh, we are all, I mentioned this already, we're all souls having human experience. And in uh, one, uh, one sense, uh, the true self is the same in all of us. Mm -hmm. yeah, th those deeply held beliefs that are about soul consciousness. So what are they? They are about connecting with other people, caring about other people, compassion. Um, there's this you know, brilliant Harvard study been going on for more than 80 years now called the Grant Study, and they st followed a group of people f from Harvard for 80 or 90 years, and they came to, and they, they did surveys every year with these people. They came to the conclusion that success wasn't about fame and glory. Success in life was just about one thing, and that was the quality of your relationships. And that's coming, you know, that, wow. So what does that mean? So if we are souls having human experiences and we come from a world, an energetic world, where we're all connected. We want to replicate that in our three-dimensional material existence. And of course we get to, in our three-dimensional material ex ex experience, we learn beliefs about separation. The baby doesn't know about separation. <laughs> It's still connected. And gradually it learns 
that we're living in a separate world. And this is, this is uh, very painful for the soul. So around 18 months, two years, the soul creates the ego, which is a buffer, because it can't stand the pain of separation that is beginning to understand of living in this three-dimensional material world. And therefore, the ego now takes over and thinks it's in charge. It doesn't know about the soul. Incidentally, I, you know, I, I, this year, later this year, uh, there's a musical coming out uh, based on my book, um, What My Soul Told Me, where uh, the main character has an ego and soul, and they are actually characters in the musical. And, and, and it, it really you know, plays out this ego-soul dynamic on the stage in front of people and how we evolve from ego into soul having more influence in our lives. But then we have a unique self. And those, that unique self has special gifts and talents. So, Timothy, Raj, your special gifts and talents are different from mine. And, you know, and we could call these special gifts and talents future memory, soul purpose, whatever you want to call them. But it was differentiates us. But what unites us is at the heart and mm. in the heart, if you like to put it that way, of this, these energetic values. Values are a reflection of a certain energy and a connecting energy, a self-expression energy and a contribution energy because the soul really comes just to do those three things. One, self-express, which happened to us in our 40s, right? Self-expression. Yeah. Um, probably you too, Timothy. Um, self-expression, connection, contribution. So if you can live a life of self-expression, connection, contribution, you've got it. You know, yeah. you're on the pathway to a, a long-lasting and, and, a, and, a, and a really viable life. Now, when you don't get on that path, you tend to die early or earlier because I'm not saying that everybody, but, but there's a link between the energy and the physical health. And, and that's all wrapped up in that, what I call the ego-soul dynamic. Well, I, I love the, in, in your model, in your writing, you know, you have these sort of circles of sort of I or me, and then you have us and then, you know, or we, and then you have the, the broader context. And for me, that brings up the whole question of leadership. And we start getting into this, you know, like, what does this mean for a leader? In your words, you know, what does it mean to be a conscious leader try to live from this place uh, becoming becoming conscious there um, there are three aspects to that and this applies to anybody basically um, even to to those who are going through the individuating stage it, becoming consciousness is important and you have to go through that stage to be a leader the, the last president of the usa was certainly not conscious and never got past the individuating stage of development anyhow let me just say there are three aspects one becoming aware of how your actions and behaviors impact other people on the planet, point one. Point two, becoming aware of how your thoughts and beliefs impact your physical and mental health. Point three, caring about how your actions and behaviors affect other people and caring about how your thoughts and beliefs impact your physical and mental health. Mm -hmm. So those three aspects are all about, that's what it takes to become conscious. It's about an increased level of awareness. Mm. Uh, mm. Am I impacting my uh, other people in my organization when I have a show up with all these limiting values, uh, being demanding, being ego-driven? Yes, I am. So uh, 
when I'm aware of how I'm impacting other people, and that's the key to leadership development is becoming aware of those limiting values that you have, uh, which are impacting other people. So you're becoming, so leadership development is really about becoming conscious mm-hmm. and, and expanding your sense of identity. Uh, and as you do that, you move up into the higher stages of development, the higher levels of consciousness, and then you become a full spectrum leader. So that means I, I care yeah. about the bottom line and survival. Yeah. I care about the, my health of my employees. Uh, level two, relationships. I care about our employees. I care about our customers. Uh, uh, level three, I care about efficiency and productivity as performance. At level four, I care about giving people uh, a sense of uh, autonomy and freedom to make mistakes inside so that they can learn. At level five, I care about meaning and purpose and, and why we're here. At level six, I care about, I care about connection and leadership development and mentoring and coaching at level seven. I care about society and the impact we're having on society. I care about uh, future generations. I care about sustainable development. Mm. So you see how all of that links to identity, consciousness, and becoming conscious. Mm. Well, I love that because, you know, one of the things that we talk about sometimes is that uh, an organization can't be more conscious and the levels of consciousness of the leaders. Correct. And I would love you to talk a little bit about, you know, actually in the work that you do, where you're going in and you're surveying the values of the organization, and then you're surveying the values of certain people on the leadership team. And then you're getting to a point of like, okay, we're going to lead a transformation here. Now let's have a discussion about where the gaps are around sure. some of these things. Yeah, so the cultural values assessment find, tells you exactly where the issues are. And then the leadership values assessment tells you, uh, you know, the leader's contribution. To it. So if you do a cultural values assessment by department or by bureau or whatever, and you find the, the departments with the high levels of cultural entropy, that's the fear-based values, go and look there because that department has leaders who have a lot of personal entropy and need to be able to explore these limiting beliefs. Now, you can't do this work, (laughs) I've learned, unless you're confrontational. Mm. (laughs) You know, you can't come in with the lovey-dovey approach. It has to be hard. You've got to say to the leader, look, this is how you're showing up. Is this, is this how you want to be? Mm. Have you been like this all your life? And then you go into that. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I'm only a bit joking there, but, the, you know, it's, people are not aware of how they come across, and that's why you need this feedback. And they're not aware how they're impacting the organization. That's why you need this feedback. And, and they, um, yeah, they don't, they don't understand that, that this organization is a reflection of who they are. This is, this is true in um, most organizations uh, because most organizations are authoritarian. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, now, uh, if you go to a country which is democratic, um, <laughs> the leaders actually reflect the average level of consciousness of the people. <laughs> Because they elect people who they resonate with. So when Donald Trump get elected, half the people in America are coming from that level of consciousness. All right. So in democratic countries, we elect 
we like people who reflect who the average level of consciousness. Well, that's a great insight. Um, and so, <laughs> interestingly enough, if you look at the most the, the top seven most advanced nations in terms of well-being, five of them are run by women. Mm, mm -hmm, mm. <laughs> and you look at the next eight, only one of them is run by a woman. That's Germany. Mm. So, you know, it's like, uh, so there's the, because organizations are authoritarian in nature and modern countries are democratic in nature, you have to be able to see that difference. Like, you know, it's a popularity game in democracy, whereas in, the, in uh, organizations, it's very often not a popularity game, but who can I make a leader who's going to earn me most money? Mm. Does that suggest that we need to bring some democracy into organizations, that leaders, that stakeholders should have some say in who becomes the next leader? Is that No, I'm not saying necessarily, but that's what a cultural values assessment does. It says, what are my personal values from employees? What are the values I see in the organization? What values would I like to see? Now, if, if the leader takes that Seriously, he will realize that the gap between the current and the desired is a reflection of the consciousness of the leaders and the people are actually giving a message. We want more of this. Now, could you say that is democratic? In a way it is, if they listen. There's a certain, there's a certain hidden level of democracy there. It's not blatant, but it's like, aha, if the employees see this and they want that they have these needs and if they have those needs and those needs are satisfied they will be very much happier and more productive and they will bring their discretionary energy to work so as an enlightened leader i get that and i get the fact that actually i've created a culture that is not that and maybe i i need to step down as a leader and i've that's happened in some of the clients i've worked with the leader said you know what i'm not the person to lead this organization anymore mm. Mm. Would it make sense to also include customers? Absolutely. That's perfectly, that, that happens, you know, um, at the Barrett Value Center where we do that. We always do a customer assessment every year, same time as we do an internal audit, uh, because it tells us, um, are, are our values going out into the world? Are people mm -hmm. getting who we are? And do they resonate with that? Mm. So for a conscious company, you want all of your stakeholders, your suppliers, yeah, your investors. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So that the, so that stakeholder values assessment is similar to the internal assessment. So instead of saying, what are your personal values? What values you see in the company? What values would you like to see in the company as an employee? Now you say, what are your personal values as a stakeholder? What values do you see in that company? What values would you like to see in that company? But from the external perspective, because you're not part of the company. But it's the yeah. same process. Yeah. So I know, Richard, that you've also elevated this and worked at a level with a country in some countries. And I remember year, a number of years ago where you were working with one country to sort of help them become one of the first values-based nations. And... Um, you don't have to go into discussing necessarily who that country was, or, but I'm curious as to what was the transformation lesson there of going in and having some leaders who aspire to, you know, understand where do the population believe we are today? Where would they like us to be? Yeah. And are we willing to start to get into the politics of how we close that gap? <laughs> 
Well, uh, I'm going to give you an interesting example. I don't think it's the one you're thinking about. I'm going to talk about Iceland. In 2008, um, in, in August 2008, we did a, a values assessment of Iceland. We've done about 60 or 70 of these assessments. Sometimes, some of them in, in many countries, we've done one every year for 10 years in Sweden. So I went to Iceland, we did the values assessment, and we're able to map the level of cultural entropy, which is the degree of dysfunction in the system due to these limiting values that are showing up in the current culture. Well, the level of, now, for me, Iceland is like, wow, one of the top nations, you know, well-being, et cetera, et cetera. It had a level of cultural entry at 52%, which was extraordinarily large. You know, if it had been 8%, I would have... Yeah, I wouldn't have batted an eyelid, but 52%, that's worse than the worst organizations. So I actually went to Iceland and I presented and I said, you know, if you were an organization, you'd be going bankrupt about now because all of that cultural entropy would mean that you were completely dysfunctional. So the question was, why? Why was this high level of cultural entropy in this nation, which is one of the most advanced nations? took me about seven or eight years to figure that out. And what I realized was that um, the people had reached a stage of development where their values were, say, um, at uh, level four or five. And what had just, but I forgot to say, by the way, the month after I went there, Iceland went bankrupt. <laughs> that was the, sorry, that was a killer line. Yeah, I forgot <laughs> it. Uh, yeah, they went bankrupt. Uh, so, um, so, so the people have reached this high stage of development and the government and the banks had started these schemes to make money, which didn't make any sense at all and led to bankruptcy. And the people were... The people somehow understood that, and that's why there was this high, high level of cultural entropy. And so in that particular case, the leaders and the, those who were managing the power in the country were at a lower level of consciousness, which the people recognized, and that's why there was high level of cultural entropy. And that same thing happens in, in organizations. Um, and uh, so then they got into all sorts of discussions at the national level and uh, things began to began to change. Um, and they're still working through that process because a lot of trust was lost mm. between the banking system and the people of the country and between politicians and the people of the country. Mm. Now, another story, uh, at the same time, around the same time, we mapped the values of the United Arab Emirates. Now, in terms of well-being, well much further down. And we found a level of cultural entropy of 12%, which is really low. It's like, wow, how come Iceland has this? And it couldn't, I couldn't figure it out. It took me quite a while, as I said, to figure out. And then I realized that actually the people in the United Emirates were at a, a lower stage of development and the government was at the same stage. And so they were quite happy. And, 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 and there's no criticism there. It's like, oh, the people are happy with their government, uh, which is authoritarian. Mm. Um, and it, so it depends on what stage of development the people are at as to what type of government they're happy with or not happy with. Um, wow, all of that was like huge. I mean, it's like learning by doing. It's like mm -hmm. unbelievable mm -hmm. learning around... Wow, 
what is you know the impact of consciousness of the people on the organization on the nation the impact of people's stages of development on the culture of the country uh, uh, so richard we've talked about the individual we've talked about leaders we've talked about organizations and countries and now you're taking your work to an even bigger stage and you know recently um, getting very much involved in your global well-being initiatives. So maybe tell us a little bit about that and, and, sure. and how does that come about and where do you hope it goes? So first of all, uh, it's the Humanity Awareness Initiative. The website went up last week, humanityawarenessinitiative.org. That's one thing. And that is uh, ready to launch. Uh, we are, if you go back to um, 1850, uh, and the Nordic region, the uh, very wise people over there realized that the Industrial Revolution was coming, the people would be moving to cities, and these people with a, you know, a low level of identity, local community, would have to expand their sense of identity. And so they instituted a training program called Bildung, which um, went on until from 1860 all the way through to the Second World War which was really an individuating program, that fourth stage of development. And this is the reason, there's a book called The Nordic Secret, this is the reason why these Nordic nations are all like top of the well-being stakes. You know, they always come out top in terms of consciousness because they trained their people to individuate and self-actualize. And so over there, you have social democracy. Now, in America, social democracy is linked to communism. It's not communism at all. It's got nothing to do with communism. Um, it, it means about caring about the whole so that everybody's treated equally. Everybody has free education. They, their children go to free kindergarten. They've got a free health service. But everybody pays. And everybody's happy. To, uh, people in Sweden are happy to pay taxes because everybody benefits. Now, See, that's a higher level of consciousness. It's a higher level of identification. It's, it, it's not something that you see in the USA. You see more of it in Canada than in the USA. Anyhow, um, so uh, that building proved to me that it's possible to transform the consciousness of a nation. So the Humanity Awareness Initiative is simply an initiative to do a global build on. I say simply, it's like, this is a 50-year project, folks. Uh, but, you know, it's a program to re-educate children, preschoolers, teenagers, young adults, mature adults, business leaders, politicians, families of wealth. It's aimed at all of those groups to help them become conscious and so that they can grow, the children can grow up and self-actualize like the Nordic nations did. And those who are older than that, like us guys, okay, we, so we, we become programmed to become conscious so that we can shift. So uh, this, these are, we're going to be trying to bring this to all nations of the world. And um, I did talk to the Office of Partnerships at the UN last week, and they loved it. And they said, wow, I mean, this is almost, I mean, they didn't say that, but it's almost like the sister to the uh, SDGs. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, so the SDGs are the outer curriculum. Is this is what we have to do for well-being. And the Humanity Awareness Initiative is the inner curriculum. 
And that is what is going to accelerate the evolution of human consciousness, which is the very first thing I said when you asked me, what am, what am I about? I'm about the evolution of human consciousness. So Humanity Awareness, that's what it's about. Website is up, humanityawarenessinitiative.org. Now, you mentioned something else, Global Wellbeing. I just launched another website. It's still under construction, but you, it's a taster. I developed a method of measuring the well-being of nations using 17 global indicators, which are out there, and they're plant mapped to the seven levels of consciousness. Uh, so if you were to go to globalwellbeing.org, I mean, it only went up yesterday, I can't even remember the website, globalwellbeing.org, oh, sorry, .com. Uh, we, I, I've been plotting the these 17 indicators and therefore the levels of well-being in 145 nations since 2014, 16, 18, and 19, and we're just about to do it for 2020. And you can see what's happening in any nation, in any of these 17 indicators, at the national level, what's the level of well-being? So, you know, the quick snapshot is that you know, USA well-being has been going down and the ranking of USA in terms of well-being has been going down uh, quite a bit over the past uh, few years. Uh, in fact, there are, we've been going down in quite a number of countries. There are some countries that actually have been improving in consciousness and well-being. I'm equating consciousness to well-being here because I'm using these 17 indicators. Now, what are they? They're things like uh, level of corruption, level of peace, violence, uh, education, level of education, you know, educational initiatives, um, uh, gender equality, level of democracy, uh, fragility of the state. Uh, anyhow, they're all 17, which map to the seven levels and then allow us to create this one number, which is the well-being, uh, global well-being indicator for that particular nation. And we can map that over time. Now, <laughs> obviously, I mean, if we think about it long enough, the Humanity Awareness Initiative is aimed at increasing consciousness in nations, which will show up in levels of well-being over time. And we're talking, I'm not talking five, 10, I'm talking 50 years. Mm. And, and so this is, so these two things actually map together quite mm. closely. Ah. Yeah, well, it's, it's almost like you can't build the cathedral without having some tools to build the cathedral. So you're, you're sort of providing these tools that we can now use to measure. assess and measure. Mm -hmm. And if we can assess and measure, then we can sort of baseline and we can sort of set targets for ourselves and we can start working to close those gaps. Now, I'm so glad you said it that, that way, because I'm not talking about benchmarking. Okay, I'm not a big fan of benchmarking because every mm. company is unique. So why would I compare myself to another company yeah. when I'm a, like a unique? In a, why would you, Timothy, compare yourself to yeah. Raj? I could only you, hope. No. Yeah, right, no, you're not going to benchmark. And Raj is not going to benchmark against right. you because uh, you're unique. And yeah, every yeah, yeah. organization is unique too. <laughs> so you benchmark against yourself, basically. Yeah. And it's the same in nations. Now, is there a way forward? Yes, we can see what these nations have been doing these ones at the upper level, and maybe we can shift our policies in that direction because that seems to be successful. Maybe we could try that, but we try it in our own way, yeah. Yeah. based on our own history. We don't <clears throat> benchmark that nation. We go, aha, that's a direction. For example, in the Middle East, uh, you know, gender equality is an issue. But guess what? It's also an issue in the United States. It's also an issue in Canada. Yeah. Um, Maybe not to the same degree, but 
if you look at the Nordic nations, you say, oh, that's what they've achieved. Now, we don't have to copy that, but we can head in that direction. And what can we do in our own culture to move in that direction? Well, Richard, thank you so much for all that you contribute both to the world and to our podcast today. We've really enjoyed the breadth and depth that you've brought to this discussion. So thank, thank you, you so much for that. And for those of you that are listening to this podcast on whatever channel you're listening, remember there is a subscribe button. So feel free to hit that subscribe button if you want to hear more. And if you have some comments that you'd like to leave for Raj and I, please go to theconsciouscapitalists.com where you can do that. And of course, if you want to hear more about conscious capitalism, there's a couple different ways. One way is to read and the book that Raj and I have co-authored, uh, The Conscious Capitalism Field Guide. And if they want to hear more about conscious capitalism, what's another way they can do that, Raj? They can go to consciouscapitalism.org, which is the uh, website for the movement, for the nonprofit. And of course, we encourage you to tell your friends about this podcast as well. And Richard, thank you so much. It's really been a joy and a delight to know you all these years. And your work just keeps getting deeper and more clear. Thank you. And more impactful as it evolves. So you're such a gift uh, to all of us. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I've really enjoyed being with you guys. <laughs> <laughs>